Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Hilde, today we explore the immune system, how it works, and the impact of immunotherapy for lung cancer. We've got a great guest, Dr. David Barbie, an oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I'm ready to learn, our listeners are, and I know you are as well. So take it away, Hilde. Our topic today is the immune system. Listeners, now don't be afraid if your last brush with science was in high school biology. Our guest is going to help us understand the immune system and how it helps to protect and defend our bodies. Dave, I've read uh, in preparing for this uh, conversation today that the immune system keeps a record of every germ it's ever annihilated so it can quickly spot them and wipe out that germ if it enters the body again. Uh, that sounds amazing. I'll have to check and see if that's true. It sounds like uh, some kind of a soldier standing guard at some outpost. So please tell us about our immune system and keep it available for all of us to uh, understand. Absolutely, Hildy. Well, thanks again for inviting me to be part of this podcast. Obviously, one of the discussions we'll get to is to talk about the immune system and cancer. Um, but as you alluded to, I think it's best first to talk about how our immune system fights germs, and germs meaning foreign invaders. And that can come in many varieties. It can be bacteria, for example. The foreign invader that I think is most useful to talk about are viruses, uh, especially apropos to the pandemic uh, that we recently um, suffered. That really provides a good example of how I can talk about the immune system, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, because essentially what happened is here comes a virus that jumped from animals into humans, so there was no memory, what you just said. Um, and it is true, actually, that th the reason that we um, often can combat other viruses is that even though they mutate you know, to, to help evade uh, our, the, the, the memory, um, we still have a good deg degree of memory in, in the cells that I'm going to talk about. So that's why we don't we get sick initially, but we can eventually fend it off. But the problem with COVID-19 is there was a piece of it that was completely foreign and there was no memory, okay? So what does that memory consist of? And, and that memory is something called the adaptive immune system. And that sounds like a mouthful. What the adaptive immune system are basically what many people have heard of are B cells and T cells, lymphocytes, B lymphocytes and T lymphocytes. And, and those were actually discovered um, way before what I'm going to talk about later, uh, which is called the innate immune system. But a very simple way to think about what are B lymphocytes and what are T lymphocytes and how do they help us with this adaptive memory is another very important uh, lesson that we learned during the, the pandemic is that even if we weren't fortunately exposed to COVID-19 early on, that getting vaccinated could protect us. Um, because what happened with those vaccines, and, and in fact, as, as you also are aware, the most successful vaccines were actually using something called messenger RNA, uh, the, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. Um, but basically, when we got those vaccines um, in our arm, um, that that messenger RNA got taken up to our lymph nodes under our, our armpit um, and started making a piece of the, the COVID virus. 
the, the, the protein, the, the, for, the new foreign protein that our bodies haven't seen, that spike protein, which happened to be the one that was responsible for causing the severe uh, symptoms. Um, first, I'll talk about the B cells. Um, but what happened is when that piece of the protein started getting made um, over time, because it had to adapt, it's, you know, it takes still several days for these B cells to get generated. But your, the B, your B cells started saying, hey, there's a foreign piece that our is not normal to our body. And, and the, the key point is that what B cells do is they make antibodies. So the B cell, you know, and I'll, and I'll stop. I, I did, no, 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 I just had a quick question. Yes. Um, so what, what is a B cell? Is that a protein? Is that something it's a else? It, it's, a, it's a type of a lymphocyte. It's a type of cell that comes from your bone marrow and turns into this lymphocyte. Um, and that that specialized type of cell is designed to recognize foreign proteins and secrete antibodies. The lymphocyte has to do with the lymph system? Exactly. That's where they move. They start in the bone marrow, but they go to the lymph nodes. Perfect. Carry on. <laughs> so, so again, coming back to this example of the messenger RNA vaccines, what that piece of the mRNA and the protein did is it stimulated B cells in your body to recognize it and to start making antibodies that could then neutralize, bind to, and so that when we did get COVID, um, help to make it less uh, invasive and less virulent. Um, and in fact, that's what you can measure uh, when after in, in the early clinical trials of the vaccine, when they were given, you could measure the production of those antibodies in the blood to and, know that it was effective. And what does that mean? What is an antibody? Right. So the B cell itself, as I just said, is a cell, that, a lymphocyte that goes to the lymph node. Um, but what, it, what an antibody is, is on, on the surface of the B cell is this receptor. It's, it's this piece of protein that sticks on the, on the B cell. And as it starts to mature, that it starts spitting out that receptor on its surface. And, 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 and um, I used to work with, uh, when I got my training with Ed Harlow uh, at Mass General, who had made antibodies for a living. And I thought he made a very good example when the Zakem Bridge was uh, built, uh, that basically it looks like two upside down antibodies. If you can picture what the, the struts of the Zakem Bridge are, that's sort of what an antibody looks like. Um, and that's normally on the surface of the B cell, but, but what happens is it starts secreting it. Um, and so the antibodies are these little proteins that look like those struts going through your body and finding the foreign pieces of uh, proteins. And in this case, very importantly, the COVID uh, spike protein. So anybody who's listening in California who have, if you don't know what the Zakem bridge looks like, I, I suggest after we're all done, go Google it. It's really quite a bridge. It's beautiful. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Okay. So, so that's one component. Um, those B lymphocytes get triggered and start secreting the antibodies. And that's again, an adaptive process over days to weeks. Um, and that's why the B lymphocytes are part of the adaptive immune system. But the other really key um, component, especially as you get to thinking about tumors, are your T cells or your T lymphocytes. And I'm sure many of you have heard, um, coming back to a prior, hope, what we hope are, is in the past was the HIV pandemic, now that we have very effective um, antivirals, um, that it's still an issue, but less of an issue. Um, if you remember what HIV does is it actually infects your T cells. Um, and knocks out your T cells. And that's what makes patients so immune compromised. So this highlights why T cells are also very important soldiers 
And, and sort of to, to your question is what is a B cell or a B lymphocyte under a microscope, the T lymphocyte looks the same. They're both these small cells that go to lymph nodes, just like the B, the B cells. But instead of um, making antibodies, having this receptor on its surface and secreting antibodies, the T cells have a different function. Um, they have a receptor too, but their function is to seek and destroy. So they don't secrete their receptor like an antibody. They actually move into, uh, in the case of a virus, uh, wh where the cells are that have the piece of the virus that's infected, they're able to detect the piece of the virus on that infected cell, and they basically just attack and kill that virally infected cell. Um, and, and so that, that's, again, though, something that develops over days to weeks. Um, but, but basically, we have these two soldiers of the adaptive immune response, the B cells, which will make antibodies, and then the T cells, which will actually find, hunt down, and kill the virally infected cells. And, and to, to answer your original question, yes, if you have a viral infection and uh, you have these T cells and B cells that do the job, they then shrink back down into what are called memory cells um, so that they don't completely disappear so that a year later or two years later, when you get exposed to the same infection, they're ready to go. And instead of taking weeks to adapt, within a few days, they can adapt and immediately hunt out. And, and, and this is the memory that you, you read about. Correct anything I'm saying that's not right, but it sounds like the B cells and the T cells are like their defensive and offensive characters that yep. fight off these um, invading armies of, exactly. of germs. That's so interesting. So, so what goes wrong when we get sick? What happens, especially like in cancer? Let's just stay with cancer for a moment. The issue with cancer, the, the main issue with cancer so I mentioned that with COVID-19, the problem was this is a completely new foreign protein. So our bodies had no existing defenses and, and, and until we got vaccinated or exposed and had that memory, were, were we, have we been okay, fortunately. But the problem with cancer is the opposite. Cancer is our, comes from ourself. And so our immune system is highly trained not to recognize our own cells. Because if, if those T cells or those B cells recognize our own tissue, you get something called autoimmunity. And I'm sure you and our listeners have heard about various autoimmune conditions, such as rheumatoid arthritis, which is when some, sometimes in young people, unfortunately, there's a juvenile form, but more commonly in, 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 as we age, our immune system can go haywire and the T cells and the B cells can attack your joints. Um, there's other autoimmune conditions such as lupus um, that you may have heard about or Crohn's disease uh, where uh, your immune system attacks your colon as an example. This just exemplifies the fact that we don't want our immune system to rec recognize our normal cells to avoid these conditions. Um, and so when we think about cancer, cancer arises, let's talk about lung cancer because that's my expertise and obviously why we're that's right. Podcast. <laughs> lung, lung cancer comes from our lung cells, um, either deep in the lung or in the bronchi um, and the, the cells in your in your upper airways. And so normally, like I said, your immune system isn't recognizing those cells unless they get infected with COVID, for example. The, the, the difference, though, is that how does cancer develop? Well, it's that your normal cells get mutated. And I'm sure there have been other podcasts um, about the various mutations that can happen in lung cancer and, 
And one of the ways we've been able to treat this is with targeted therapy is we know what mutations happen and, and we know what, how to then block the effects of those mutations. But the fact that the cells do get mutated do make them foreign. That the fact that now these cells, are, they become foreign, but the question is, are they foreign enough? Uh, have they mutated enough to make that cell different enough for now the T cells and the B cells uh, to recognize it? And that's that's one of the one of the issues why uh, cancer can remain uh, invisible to the immune system. So interesting. I mean, the complexity of the immune system, we depend on it, you know, being regulated. And so, as you were saying, like if it gets dysregulated, then it's either overactive, and that's not good for the autoimmune problems. And if it's under uh, active, then then it's not going to fight cancer in the way we need it to. So, but it's it's really interesting putting it in that perspective of novel, and I'm going to call it novel invading forces versus familiar ones, or or maybe partially familiar ones. If we anthropomorphize our immune system. Mm -hmm. And think of it as like trying to figure out, like, what, what am I going to do about this thing? Or this looks unusual. Um, it's just really extraordinary. Um, you mentioned targeted therapies. We've done a number of podcasts looking at targeted therapies. Um, our audience may be familiar with like EGFR and ALK and others. Um, and so what's been so cool about that, as you said, um, the drug manufacturers and the researchers have come up with ways of just addressing the mutation itself and not necessarily trying to go after the whole body all at once. So maybe um, that would be an opportunity for us to discuss a different line of drug treatments for cancer and lung cancer, and that is the immunotherapies. So can you say something about like how did the whole idea come about? What does it do and how does it work and how effective is it? And there you go. Yes, yes. So coming back to the EGFR and the ALK, where we have very fortunately, and these tend to occur in never smokers or rare, you know, remote smokers, and where we have effective targeted therapy, the issue for those two cancer subtypes for immunotherapy is there are very few mutations. Pa patients haven't smoked. And so, yes, there are these limited drivers, the ALK and the EGFR, and that makes them vulnerable. But the fact that there are very few other mutations in the cancer makes it more like your normal lung. It's not as foreign. So the immune system largely ignores it. But come back, come to the most common type of lung cancer, um, classically, where it's been associated with smoking, what's been frustrating for us as oncologists is that often we don't have a pill um, for patients who have smoked. You don't often find these targetable genes. Um, but the advantage in this context is be because of the, the tobacco mutagens that cause the cancer, you actually end up having hundreds to thousands of mutations all across in addition to the, the driver mutation, like a KRAS, which is the one that I also study. But it turns out not only do you have that gene that's driving the cancer, like the KRAS, but you actually end up getting tons of other mutations. And another way to think about this is melanoma, okay? Melanoma, another type, and I'll get to your question about how, how we finally got immunotherapy to work. If you think about melanoma, it also has thousands and thousands of mutations because it developed from skin sun exposure. 
that the UV damage that occurred over and over again, again, caused thousands and thousands of mutations. So again, we'll talk about how the um, immunotherapy was finally figured out, or it's so far, <laughs> uh, how we've, we've actually been able to successfully treat a number of patients. Um, but what's really amazing is if you look at cancer types from those with a very high mutation load to a very low mutation load, it correlates. The, the, the tumor types that have a tons of these mutations, whether it be from smoking, UV exposure, or a type of colon cancer called a microsatellite unstable. Um, I don't want to get into too many, <laughs> but it's got thousands and thousands of mutations. These are very sensitive to the immune system because they're much more foreign, if that makes sense. That all these mutations make the cell much more foreign, so there's more opportunities for the T cells um, and probably the B cells to find them. So two questions. So, so, so basically, you're focusing on. Um more external um, causes of the cancer to originate versus something that's gone awry inside, or maybe they're all external at some level, but these feel like um, uh, more environmental um, impact. Yeah. yeah. Because when you have the environmental impact, there's a lot more mutations that can happen alongside the ones that are causing the cancer itself. So are you talking about small cell lung cancer when you're talking about the one that has thousands of mutations yeah. from most likely from smoking? Yeah. Yeah. Well, small cell is one example that is classically associated with smoking, does have thousands of mutations, although we can discuss if we want to, but this is one that actually doesn't respond as well to immunotherapy. But really, I think the, the one that really does is, is KRAS mutant lung cancer. The majority of KRAS mutant lung cancers that are caused by smoking many of them do respond better than average to immunotherapy because they have a lot of these mutations and they, that make them more foreign in general. So, so, getting, so getting to really your question is how can you train the immune system? If, if obviously it failed because the cancer formed, how can you then get your T cells? And, and I'm going to focus on the T cells because we know best about how T cells fight cancer. How can you retrain your T cells to fight the tumor? And this idea has been around for many, many, many years, and many smart scientists were trying to train the immune system. And what but the problem that they were facing is that they were trying to boost it. Just as one example, without getting too technical. I'm sorry, the boost it, the it in this case is the immune system. Your cells. Boost your immune system. So boosting the immune system means it, like empowering well, well, the T cells. Well, okay, well, here, okay. There, there's a fine, there's a fine distinction that hopefully I'll explain to you and your listeners between boosting your immune system versus unleashing your immune system. Okay, this. And this, I'll explain this. Okay, so all right. so what what people tried for just one example of this for many years is to infuse patients with a factor. It's called interleukin-2 is, is what was, was what many people tried. And that is a growth factor for the T lymphocytes. So if you infuse the interleukin-2, your T lymphocytes are going to start to grow throughout your whole body, okay? But what would happen is people would get really sick because all of your T lymphocytes got activated and you got high fevers and, 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 and it wasn't training the exact T lymphocytes that could recognize those rare mutated cancer cells, Okay. And so while there was a lot of research in this, um, it was really never successful to give patients interleukin-2. And that's what I mean by trying to boost, boost your immune system sort of non-specifically. 
But what won the Nobel Prize uh, were two key discoveries. Um, and what people have maybe heard about is something called immune checkpoint blockade. One of my questions, I've heard this over and over. I have no idea what this means. So Okay, but but I, I have an, a very simple analogy. Good. I give my patients that hopefully helps to explain what I mean by unleashing the immune system and what this what this means. And so I'm going to talk about the major that there's there's two two antibodies. Uh, these are antibodies actually themselves <laughs> that that are the are the actual immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, but the, the thing that I'm going to focus on targets something called PD-1 and PDL one which you and, 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 and again, many of your listeners may have heard about, about, but don't fully understand. And so here's the way to understand this, is that when a lung cancer is forming, and let's say it's got all these mutations on the inside, it, it's, it's someone had smoked, and so it's actually vulnerable. It, it had, it's very foreign. And it could be attacked by your T cells. But what it does is if you remember the, the uh, Star Trek or Star Wars movies where you have the planet and there's the force field around the planet. <laughs> and remember the ships, the ships are trying to attack the planet, but there's the force field. They're firing on it, uh, but the planet is preventing the ships from successfully attacking. Well, now visualize the tumor is the planet and the ships are those T cells. Tumor does is it puts up this force field around it. And that's what PDL1 is. PDL1 is something that the tumors and the surrounding cells put up around them to create this force field. And, and, and what it actually stands for is program death, okay? I, I know, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't say I loved it, but it was like cool to see that's what that stood for. I really didn't know before. Well, but, but the problem is it's programming the death of your T cells. So, uh, so the PDL1, L stands for ligand, okay? So, so when this force field is around, the PDL1 is very high around the tumor, the T cells are trying to come in and the PD1 is on the T cell itself, the program death. So when it, they interact, just like my analogy, when the ships try to attack the plant, they hit the force field and they crash into it and die. The T cells keep crashing in to the tumor and dying because the PDL1 is binding to the PD1 on the T cells. Okay. So, why I think this is such a good analogy is what the Keytruda or the Optivo that, or the now several other uh, antibodies that companies have developed, what they do is just like in the movies, they're shutting down the force field. Mm. I have a quick question, just a follow-up, and and this is a fascinating interview. And the question has to do yes. with the viral impact on the body and cancer. Yes. We know about yes. HPV, and there's a vaccine that yep. uh, people in certain demographics should take. Where are we yep. on the study of virus causing cancer, other kinds of cancers, and are we on the cusp because of RNA technology, mRNA technology, to seeing some remarkable developments? I'm hoping the answer is yes, but let's get a sense yeah, from you. Yeah, yes, we are. Um, and I think I have another answer to your question about uh, how viruses are play a role in cancer in general, because, uh, because it turns out they do. However, there really are only a limited number of cancers where we know that viruses are, external viruses are actually the cause. So as you mentioned, HPV infection, um, and that's because there's a protein that some of the strains make that interfere with 
the um, cancer machinery uh, to, to actually a tel tel cell to grow and divide. Um, the others are, there are certain lymphomas, Epstein-Barr virus uh, can cause certain types of lymphomas. Um, and um, there are other nasopharyngeal cancers that can also be caused by viruses. But, but outside of patients who get immune compromised from a transplant, for example, uh, if you had an organ transplant, you're on immune suppressant, um, there are other types of rare viral induced tumors that can occur there. I would say the vast, the vast majority of tumors, for example, lung cancer is not caused by the insertion of a virus in the lung cancer cells. That was a great question, Jordan. And clearly there's a lot uh, to think about in terms of uh, eventual vaccines, ways of um, inoculating ourselves before a cancer occurs. I, I was back to the immunotherapy, though. I'm not sure we totally exhausted it. We got the Nobel Prize for actually when you were talking about the, um, the the program death and the force field and all of this, I thought, you know, after we're done, maybe we could sit down and write some kind of an action adventure. <laughs> I had a patient that gave me uh, some Star Wars figures. I have them in my office. I love it. It's perfect. So, um, yeah. So, so now the idea is to to shut that down. I'm not sure you were finished talking yeah. about. Well, well, I want to come back to what I was saying, and hopefully this now makes sense. Thinking of this analogy, boosting the immune system by giving this interleukin two non-specifically activates all your T cells and has all those side effects. Okay. But now do you understand what I mean by unleashing your immune system? If the tumor specifically has the force field around it and all you're doing is shutting off that force field, you're now unleashing the ability of those T cells now to get inside and start taking care of the tumor. And that's, and then again, if you think about it, that's what the term immune checkpoint inhibitor means. A checkpoint is the force field. The tumor is putting up this checkpoint around it, and you're inhibiting that checkpoint with the by disrupting the force field with the K-true to the Opdivo as an example. That makes a great deal of sense. So how effective is immunotherapy for lung cancer? I know, you know, people look at the effectiveness of, of immunotherapy in various cancers, but how about with lung cancer? makes it so exciting for us, but also frustrating. And, and it's very much like the targeted therapies where we are so excited when we find an EGFR mutation or an ALK because we know we have a very good therapy. And similarly, there are certain features of tumors we know the immune checkpoint inhibitors are likely to work when they have a high PDL1. And so, so you may have heard of, you know, is the PDL1 high? Is it greater than 50%? And now again, with my analogy, all you have to think about is if you stain the tumor, and it's lighting up for the PDL1, it's got the force field around it. And, 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 the, and, so, and so in fact, the tumors that respond best are the ones that have a very high PDL1 level because they're put, they actually have the force field and they have a high mutation burden. What I said, they're foreign, they have a lot of mutations and they have a high a force field around it. Those are the ones where it tends to work. And in those patients, you can get upwards of 50% response rates to the, to the immunotherapy. Now, the other thing to distinguish, however, is shrinkage of the cancer, which we're all obviously aiming for. But in our patients with stage four lung cancer, can we actually cure them with stage four lung cancer, which 20 years ago was never really possible. Mm -hmm. Chemotherapy alone, and even with targeted therapy, while we can get very durable responses, as is made, if you may have heard another podcast, sometimes you can get resistance, okay? 
But what's remarkable about this immunotherapy is that in a substantial number of patients where you break the force field and the T cells get in, even with stage four lung cancer, I'm hesitant to use the word cure because, uh, because we don't, we don't like to jinx it, but we get long-term durable response. And I can, many patients of mine, five years now, now approaching, um, you know, because this is only around for 10 years, but eight to nine years, durable response. And that is because what you asked at the very beginning about our memory against germs. If you break the force field, the T cell gets in, and it's usually several different T cells finding several different, and these are called antigens is the point. The, the, I, I kind of glossed over a term not to be technical, but uh, the pieces of the COVID virus, for example, that we're trying to recognize with our vaccines, those are called antigens. They're foreign. And it's the same thing on the tumor cell. The mutated proteins, those are called antigens. And so the point is, is if with the immune checkpoint blockade, you can break the force field, you have multiple T cells recognizing these tumor antigens, they don't forget. So, so they wipe out the tumor within a few months, but then they're still there patrolling. Those T cells are patrolling forever. And we think this is why we have many, many patients with long-term durable response. Now, what is the actual percentage of non-small cell lung cancer where you have long-term durable? And, and I would, it's too low is the, is the thing. It's, it's just under 10%. Um, if you really look, if we're talking long-term durable response, um, but this is why we need research. And, and it's sort of, if you think about when the chemotherapy was discovered, it was a breakthrough because they were getting responses in the first place. That's when then you can now build upon. So, so now that we have the breakthrough of immune checkpoint blockade, so this is what I mean. It's a blessing for us as oncologists when we, when we get these amazing responses and we've taken people who had stage four disease and now, now have no evidence of these. It's remarkable, but it's too few. Uh, and this is why we're all doing research to how can we get that number greater than 10% who have a long-term response. So what would have to happen to make um, either more people uh, capable of these long-term um, results or the drug itself that needs, I mean, what, what, what needs to happen here to make um as I mentioned, there are patients that have the high mutation burden and have the high PDL1 force field. And that makes sense that, that this is why the, if you now disrupt the force field, this is why it works. Okay. But again, that's a minor, it's only about 10 to 20% that have this high, this, these features that would make it respond in such a way. And so we want to find other ways in which the tumors are escaping the immune system. And so so I, I'll give you just one example um, of small cell lung cancer that you, you brought up, which is a paradox because it has just as many, if not more mutations than the non-small cell lung cancer because patients smoke, okay? But if you actually stain it for the PDL one you don't see the, uh, the PDL one being expressed. And, and if you look at the studies of immune checkpoint blockade in small cell, while it has been approved and we do it for all of our patients. Unfortunately, the number of patients that respond um, is even smaller um, in, in small cell lung cancer. And so this is something that we and many others have been working on to try to figure out what is the mechanism? Because if you understand the science, if you understand why, how, how is it escaping if it has so many mutations, then you can start to reverse it. And, and so what, um, one of the things that, that we and others have found is that even though it has all those mutations on the inside, 
the antigens have to be displayed on the surface. This is the way that the, the surface of the cell is where the T cells can actually find them and do their job and, and, and kill. And it turns out what small cell lung cancer does is instead of putting up the force field, it removes that display from the surface. That right. even though it's got all these mutations, they're not being put up to be displayed to the immune system. And, and um, this was actually known in the 1990s, but kind of forgotten. And then we rediscovered it more recently, staining tumors for this, this marker, it's called MHC class one. But what we showed is that what the cancer cells are doing, they're vulnerable because they're switching it off, the, this display, and it turns out it's reversible. That with a drug, you can now get them to re-express uh, this surface display and now make them sensitive. And, and, and of course, this is all in a mouse, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, evidence, but now there are many companies with these drugs and approaches to try to reinvigorate what we call immunogenicity of small cell um, lung cancer. Um, and so that's just one example. Um, I think to myself, since I'm not a cell biologist or a chemist, but I think, how does someone take this information and go into a laboratory and come up with these drugs? I think this is something we we talked about early on with the drug companies that often get such bad rap, but most people don't know it takes a billion dollars to bring a drug to market, a billion dollars. Why? Not because of high salaries, but because of these problems that are so difficult and there's so many trials and errors and try again and um it's really quite something. So I, my hat's off to um, all the researchers in these uh, areas, including you. I have a question. So when a, a person, um, I hate to just label a patient, but when a person goes to a doctor or whatever, and somehow the whether it's a MRI or a CT scan or something comes back showing that there's advanced lung cancer. How does one sit down? This is your other hat as an oncologist. How does one sit down and figure out what's going to be the best direction to treat that patient? You know, so there's chemotherapy, and maybe you could say a word about what chemotherapy is. We talked about targeted therapy, which is more figure out what the mutations are and select a drug that attacks directly that mutation. And then uh, there's immunotherapy. So there now are choices. That's the good news. Um, the difficult news is how do you how how do you make decisions to go forward? Exactly. And I think the other point is how do you explain? And that's why I come up with all these analogies, because my my view is always to educate patients so that they're part of the team and their families to make treatment decisions. And so that's why I like talking about the um, to help them understand what is immunotherapy um, and is that an option? Is that the best option for for that that patient? But to simply answer your question, um, the most important thing is have a good biopsy. Fortunately, now most centers um, do get a lot of tissue, but in the past, it used to just be important to make the diagnosis, get get a small needle biopsy to know is it non-small cell lung cancer or small cell lung cancer because all that mattered was, do you give chemotherapy and what type of chemotherapy, okay? But now in order to answer your question, you need a good amount of tissue. And actually one of the, one of the kind of major advances came from the, in, the interventional radiologists and, and with CAT scan technology that 
that what they do is um, with a CT scan, you can then have an image guided biopsy. Okay. But it wasn't until I actually saw what they use for this. It's not a, it's not a thin needle. It's actually a punch device. So it's a special device that they can watch the, the, it's like a kind of a large bore needle and that goes into the tumor. They can visualize the tumor and then it punches. And so it gets a core. So that way, when it comes out, you actually have a core of tissue. And that why, why I'm going to that detail is that it's so important to have that amount of tissue because in order to sequence the cancer, to find for the target therapies, you need enough DNA. It's a DNA test where you have to look at all the different mutations. And then to do that PDL1 stain, for example, you need enough material to stain the tumor, not just for the diagnosis, but to run that PDL1 test and to know is the PDL1 greater than 90% or very high, like I said. So, so, so I would say for all non-small cell lung cancer patients, especially the lung adenocarcinoma patients, um, but we want PDL1 levels on everybody, but we also sequence to see is there a so-called targetable or actionable mutation, like we had mentioned with the EGFR and the ALK. And, and I think Bruce Johnson, who was my, uh, you know, when, when I first started, he was the, the head of our group and taught us quite a bit. And he, he wrote a very nice editorial in the New England Journal when the PD-1 blockade studies came out and they showed that you need to be greater than 50%. You may have seen these so-called pie charts where people divide the lung adenocarcinoma based on the different mutations that you can target. He wrote one that if you think about it in lung adenocarcinoma, there's a fraction of EGFR. And this varies, by the way, in the United States versus Asia, for example. In Asia, there's a lot more EGFR. But if we think about in the United States, it's about 15%, um, 10 to 15%, we find EGFR mutations, about 5% or less than 5% with ALK. But he added a piece, slice of the pie for the PDL1 greater than 50%, mm. which is another substantial fraction. If you think about it, that sort of helps guide you, which, which, oh, and the, and the other point I, maybe I said earlier and hopefully didn't gloss over is that if you have the EGFR or the ALK, you don't respond to the immune checkpoint blockade. Because remember, these are never smokers. And so if we think about what are the three most common targetable buckets of lung adenocarcinoma is the EGFR and you give the, say, Tigriso is the, the name or the osimertinib for that, the ALK, and we use alectinib or alexenza or, or lorlatinib for that. Um, and then if you have the pd one greater than 50%, we can, uh, the, what, what is approved right now in first line is Keytruda or the, or, or we often give the Keytruda with chemo and, and that spans about 40% you know, encompassing all three of those, um, it comes about 40%, um, where you, you immediately know this is the right answer. This is what you should give. In general, if it's really clear, there's been metastatic uh, lung cancer. It sounds like in some ways, I guess it depends on what the mutations are, but it, yeah, I'm just so I guess just listening to you, it's it's more complicated in a sense about go left, go right. So is chemo always suggested as the first line and then go to targeted therapies and immunotherapies or combo? Really good question. So and this is going to change, by the way, potentially after next month. But um, but right now, let's let's focus on the immunotherapy Part where let's say the PDL1 is greater than 50%. And, and um, I mentioned that Keytruda could work by itself. Many of us, the jury's still out, whether chemo plus the Keytruda versus just giving the Keytruda alone 
is any better. Especially if the cancer is kind of is aggressive to begin with, we think that the chemotherapy will more rapidly help to shrink the cancer. Um, many of us, including myself, will give the chemo with the Keytruda, um, and then we back off. The, 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 you really only get the heavy duty chemo for the first cycle, four cycles anyway. But again, I've had many patients, you know, in that durable response category um, where you do that. You know, conversely, if someone's elderly. Uh, and they have a high PL1, we would err on the side of just giving the immunotherapy by itself, the mm-hmm. Keytruda by itself. So there's also some tailoring that happens. But it, but if the PDL1 is less than 50% and there's no targetable gene, we automatically will give the chemo with the Keytruda. The interesting part with Tegriso and EGFR, we know that taking a pill is very convenient. However, resistance can happen. It's less tends to be less durable than immunotherapy because there aren't these T cell soldiers that are have this memory that that instead you have to kill you're relying on the Tegresso to kill every cell and for resistance not to evolve. There's a clinical trial that's going to be presented next month um, called the Flora Two study, testing what if you give chemo with the Tegresso upfront versus Tegresso alone, and we're awaiting the results of that to see could adding chemo upfront with Tegresso be better. This is amazing. And I still have so many more questions. So we're going to have to come back (laughs) for a a bigger conversation. Um, I can't thank you enough. Um, This is is a tall order to make this very complicated subject available. And I really want to thank you so much, Dave Barbie, for being so um, able to express in a way that most all of us can understand. So um, thank you so much. I'll look forward to more conversations and um, take care. Thank you very much. Appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.